You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Twelve Lectures, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 5, entitled Community Building in Central Europe, given in Dornach on the 7th of July, 1923. Yesterday I attempted a study of the past century by describing how in Western Europe people joined together in associations, which were related, on the one hand, to their class, and on the other to their occupation, and we saw how these associations had a spiritual background. We even had to go as far as the human astral and capital I beings in order to study the two craft organizations, the Deverants and the Gavats. The essence of these societies which were more prevalent in Western Europe, where the new civilization was primarily developing, was that people felt themselves to be members of the community with their whole soul being, and that the various secret signs, the symbols, the legends that I've already talked about, even though they were spiritual in nature, all had links to their lives as craftsmen. The descriptions I gave you yesterday of life a century ago don't hold true for life in the more central parts of Europe. This is why it's understandable that George Sand chose these associations as a background to illustrate certain social problems. We could justifiably say that Goethe tried to do something similar with title Wilhelm Meister. He wanted to describe how people are connected to other people, to the spiritual and to their profession, and how the individual human being develops out of general humanity. Goethe tried to do this in Wilhelm Meister. If they'd been a reality for him as they were for George Sand, he would certainly have chosen such associations as a background. He didn't use them, because in those countries where Goethe was at home by dint of his cultural education, They didn't exist as such. This is the remarkable thing, that since the 15th century, when humanity first started to be preoccupied with intellectualism, human problems were regarded very differently in Central Europe than they were in the West. Yesterday I had to describe to you how the individual journeyman wanders through France, how in some town or other he becomes a member of a virtually secret society, how he receives the secret signs, and then how, as he continues his wanderings and comes to some other town, he'll find a branch there. He would identify himself and would be accepted into this branch of his society. This is how it was still in 1823, and these guilds deeply influenced the life of the respective crafts and professions. But we couldn't say the same of Central Europe. For the people of Central Europe, we'd have to say that since the 15th century, their aspiration was to cultivate the human self, the individuality. 
There wasn't such an extensive relationship between the individual person and their craft or their social class as there was in the West. Therefore, people treated their profession as a more external affair. They didn't identify their spiritual life completely with their profession. In the West, their identity and their spiritual symbols were taken from the professions. This wasn't the case in Central Europe. Their spiritual life was separate from professional life, and if you inclined toward the spiritual, then your spiritual life was separate from both your profession and your class. So you would live in such a way that if you wanted to devote yourself to the spiritual, you mentally left your professional life behind. This meant that in Central Europe they cultivated those aspects of spiritual life which had nothing to do with professions or social class. The relationship of the human being to the world was seen without any regard for nations or national context. The focus was on the human being per se. So that if one person, for instance an artisan, wanted to devote themselves to the spiritual life, then they would do so as an individual. They would reflect on the meaning of life as an individual human being. At the beginning of the 19th century, this person didn't receive the impulse for a spiritual life from an association such as I described yesterday. So in Central Europe, spiritual impulses developed in a completely different way. The individual craftsman who felt the need for self-reflection, a contemplator, would discover what was left of that body of knowledge that used to be alchemy. This has nothing to do with class, nationality, or profession. They would also become familiar with what was left of the old astrology. And what they then absorbed of all this, they would consider a valuable and important treasure for their fellow human beings. Then they would wander from place to place. They were always just individuals, no secret signs, just a human being. At first there were strange names for such people. These names emerged in a time when there was a confusion of old and new, and anyone who was a bit different was at first viewed with suspicion and called, for example, a, quote, knight of the golden spur, close quote. Someone like that had to prove that they had something of importance to say to people before they would respect them. As there were no connections through societies or the like, people who wanted to know who these individuals were had to rely on their own impressions. So if they could gain respect by dint of what they'd learned, then they had a certain influence. And if someone was well known in this way, people would talk about their arrival on a certain day. At first people would find someone like that strange, but after they'd passed through, they would think about what they'd said and would wonder how someone could have so much learning in their head, and it still be the same size as their own. The whole way in which they dealt with spiritual life was different, more on an individual level. So it came about that education in the West became much more universal because it was connected to the professional and class associations. In Central Europe, however, there developed a great divide between the educated and the mass of the people who were uneducated. This is part of the great tragedy of Central Europe, the deep divide between those who benefited from the old knowledge 
be it astrology or alchemy, and who could then delve more deeply into understanding the human condition, and the rest of the population, who were stuck at the level of second-hand ideas, many of them religious. This was the situation Goethe was faced with. He couldn't describe in his novel Wilhelm Meister a situation of, such as George Sand used in the title The Journeyman Joiner. Goethe had to describe individual people, human individualities, and their relationship to the higher worlds and to the lower worlds. In France, astral activity is shown in the Deverance and eye activity in the Gavats. This permeated both societies. But in Central Europe, we have to look at how the individual human being relates on the one hand to the heavens and on the other to the earth. In an abstract and refined way, Goethe has very nicely brought out what has existed in Central Europe since the 15th century as human knowledge and human wisdom in the characters of mockery on the one hand and the metal diviner on the other. Makari, who is a remarkable figure, appears in Goethe's Wilhelm Meister. She is a mature female personality who, because of her weakness as an invalid, doesn't completely live in the world. She has, so to speak, raised herself above earthly life and hardly moves about in an earthly manner anymore. Everybody reveres her, all the people around her, her family in the narrower and in the broader sense. And because she is independent of all earthly things, she's developed a remarkable cosmic life. And Goethe describes this cosmic life as if mockery takes part more in the life of the stars than in the life of the earth, so that all physical considerations have disappeared from her soul, and she is completely dedicated to the laws of the cosmos. But the more she dedicates herself to the laws of the cosmos, and the less meaning natural laws of the earth have for her, the more the laws of nature are transformed into cosmic moral laws. She becomes a moral authority for all who encounter her. And she doesn't represent some borrowed morality, but a morality which, to someone who's on earth, but has liberated themselves from the earthly, seems as if the stars themselves have revealed it. And what Makari proclaims through her stellar vision, her friend, the astronomer, who is now her disciple in the cosmic worlds, interprets for those around her. In a very subtle way, Goethe has described in the context of a higher social class the situation as we should imagine it for the first third of the 19th century in general. We have to imagine that at this time in some, but not many, families, there were older women who after a certain age couldn't walk anymore, were bedridden, their skin pale and transparent, so that you could see the interesting patterns of the blue veins beneath all over the body, and who seldom spoke. But when they spoke, everybody listened carefully to what they said, as these women proved to be seeresses, such as Goethe typified in his mockery. And in the last third of the 19th century, we find many groups of wisdom seekers, where people told each other about the one or other seeress, where they were to be found, what prophecies they had made, and so on. 
Such things spread out quite far and were passed from one person to another, with a certain poetic flair possible in society then, before there were newspapers. Newspapers have played an enormous part in the destruction of spiritual life. Goethe depicts such a seeress in the person of Makari. Then, at a certain point in Wilhelm Meister's journeyman years, Makari is contrasted with the figure of the metal diviner, the friend of Matanus. The metal diviner consents in a similar way with his happening in the depths of the earth. We could say the whole spiritual nature of the earth. She knows the secrets of the earthly metals and how the various metals affect human beings. And Montanus interprets what the metal diviner experiences, just as the astronomer interprets what is revealed through Makari. Thus Goethe juxtaposes the cosmic seeress with the metal diviner, who because of her special organization, a somewhat pathological organization, can reveal the secrets of the earth. Goethe shows here that he's not looking for what makes people competent and able to carry out their task on earth in those who live in the cosmos, nor in those who live in the interior of the earth. He sees what makes people competent for earthly life there, where a person knows nothing of both faculties, where they work unconsciously, and where there is a kind of balance between them like the arms of a scale. Goethe doesn't know what's behind this, but he feels, and this comes from his old-world education, how these two extremes of life, of spirit, affect each other, and in fact make a person into a proper human being when they're not just acting one-sidedly, but when both sides disappear as specifics and then work together to produce a balance in human nature. Today we can speak from the standpoint of anthroposophy, Here we have the upper human being, the nerve-sense being. Here we have the middle, the rhythmic being. Here we have the lower, the metabolic limb human being. In a person such as Makari, the upper being is dominant and not in balance with the lower being because of a pathological development of the metabolic limb being, which has fallen into a kind of torpor. This torpor is not fatal, but renders the person unable to move around in earthly space so that the head dominates and then this person will become a cosmic seer. If the nerve-sense organization recedes and the metabolic limb system is highly developed, as with the metal diviner, then this person lives with the earthly, with the forces and properties of the metals and minerals of the earth. And in the middle, human being is the balance. At this point in his social novel, titled Wilhelm Meister's Journeyman Years, Goethe wanted to describe the search for humanity in Central Europe, how the human being is divided into the cosmic on the one hand and the earthly on the other, and how true humanity can be found in the balance between the two. There was much deliberation about the balance between astrology above and alchemy down below. Certain figures stand out, such as Paracelsus or Faust, who traveled from one place to another, astonishing people with their knowledge of these secrets and that human beings can know so much about themselves. But they were not the only ones. There were little Paracelsuses and little Fausts everywhere who had smaller spheres of influence. What we still have today in the secrets of dowsing, for example, was then common practice. 
incidences such as the following happened more than once. A person with such abilities once arrived in a town and impressed the people with his knowledge of the upper and lower worlds. And after he'd greatly impressed them and they'd begun to believe in his authority, they said to him, quote, Master, you have to do something important for us. We need a well, and we want you to tell us where we should build the well. Close quote. So this person goes around the area with the inhabitants, sometimes stopping at one spot, then going on again, but then stopping at a place and saying, quote, Here it is. Now we have it. Close quote. And there they built the well. History doesn't mention things like this, which still went on in the first third of the 19th century, even though they were becoming increasingly rare. But such things are real, especially among the lower classes. Such things were cultivated and constituted their spiritual life. For them, spiritual life was to be found in such events, because they had the innermost urge to understand human life not only symbolically, but on a cosmic level. They weren't much interested in how human beings were related to their class and their profession. At that time they could see all this in their guilds, when they went out with their insignia, when they took part in processions and so on, but this didn't have the deep spiritual meaning that it had in the West. In contrast, here a life more withdrawn from the outer world had a great spiritual significance. I could almost say that in the West people wanted to understand human soul life through external social forces. In Central Europe, they wanted to experience social life as human beings in their own skin. This is what squeezed the spiritual life of Central Europe into a certain stratum of society, so that it couldn't become popular as it was in the West. And it's this too which created the great spiritual tragedy of Central Europe. We're now living in a time when it's important that many people become conscious of these things. Only when we really understand the historical context can we hope that our chaotic civilization will receive new impulses and that new life will flow into it. In Central Europe, they were already coming down to earth. Particularly Goethe shows this by looking for the balance between the upper and lower human being and contrasting the two extremes of the metal diviner and the cosmic seeress. They wanted to put human beings on the earth as active agents, but they also wanted to look up to the cosmic heights on the one hand and down to the earthly, the telluric, on the other, so as to regard people as citizens of the earth. These are the schisms that modern civilization has brought up from the depths. This is the reason why a work such as Schiller's title On the Aesthetic Education of Man, which I've often spoken about, where human beings are regarded as simply humans, free of any nationality, could only be written in Central Europe. And it was basically taken for granted, even though neither Goethe nor his successors found the solution, that they would also consider how to bring people in general to an understanding of the universality of human nature in this modern way. This is why in Goethe's title Wilhelm Meister, the so-called educational province plays a large part. Human education becomes a problem, a problem that couldn't be solved at that time, but only in the present day, 
where we have access to anthroposophical knowledge of the human being. In the West, people had, in a way, gone beyond their own skin. They were tentatively searching for a way of connecting to other people. How can we show ourselves to another person? How can we grasp their hand? How can we speak so that they understand us? The sign, the handshake, and the word, as they were used in an extravagant manner in Freemasonry, these were what had an enlivening, invigorating effect in the West up until the last third of the 19th century. In Central Europe, they didn't appreciate such symbolism, but they did strive to make sense of the riddle of the human being in general. It's interesting to compare this with Eastern Europe. There, up to the end of the first third of the 19th century and later, human beings came from the inside and didn't quite reach their skin. They remained in a soul state, which didn't quite lift them out of the divine, didn't drive them forward to the human condition. So I could say that whereas in the West the attitude developed that the world is the world, at best they were thinking about social utopias, the world is as it is and we have to live in it. We need social institutions in order to live in it, or at least we have to view those we have as if they were splendid institutions. But in Central Europe, they demanded that human beings first become human. They have to work themselves up to being human. Only then can they discover the earth. In the East, they were convinced that both these ideals were wrong. Just the idea that human beings have to work their way up to being human is to them misleading, because then they would have to leave paradise. And in reality, people should regard that piece of the earth that they live on as paradise, otherwise life becomes impossible. We should return to what is more unconscious in us instead of going out too strongly into life. This is why in Eastern Europe there has always been a certain tolerance toward the West and toward Central Europe, a certain benevolence born of human kindness. But those regions where they valued a more external way of being human as in the West or where they valued more the individual human being, as in Central Europe, constituted for the East a kind of falling away from the divine human being. And then, as the tendency developed in the East to study the rest of Europe, we can observe this in Russia very clearly, we can see that as people don't want to come out of themselves, even the best can only achieve a certain tolerance, but not a real inner understanding of the rest of the world. Russians, if they are real Russians, can't come as far forward as their own skin. They stay stuck deeply within themselves. It's much too earthly for them to come forward as far as the skin. They have to stay more deeply inside themselves. You see, this was the soul mood that Dostoevsky had to an extremely high degree. And as he's very representative for Eastern Europeans, it's always interesting to hear what Dostoevsky has to say to the people of the West. In the latest issue of the journal titled Knowledge and Life, which has just appeared, they have published letters which Dostoevsky wrote to Apollon Maikov in 1868. But if traveling had been as commonplace in the first third of the 19th century, you could just as well have read letters dating back to then. Some of you sitting here today will have to excuse me for reading parts of these letters, but it's Dostoevsky speaking and not me. 
I'm just interested in letting Dostoevsky speak. Somehow he ended up in Geneva, and now all you Genevans and people from the area have to excuse me for reading parts of a letter he wrote in 1868. Quote, in Geneva we suffered most from material discomforts and from the cold. If you only knew how stupid, dull-minded, insignificant, and wild these people are, it isn't enough just to visit the place as a tourist. No, just try to live here for a while. But I can't tell you all of my impressions now. There are just too many. The bourgeois life in this republic has developed in the non plus ultra. In government, in all of Switzerland, nothing but parties, incessant arguments, pauperism, in everything, an appalling mediocrity. The local worker isn't worth a little finger of one of ours. It's ridiculous just to watch and listen to them. Manners are raucous. Oh, if you only knew what people here regard as good or bad. Little education, drunkenness, thievery, fraud, which is even lawful here. They do have some good sides, though, which make them much preferable to the Germans. Close quote, Steiner again. Now I have to excuse myself to the other side. Continue quote. In Germany, what astonishes me the most is how stupid people are. They're unbelievably ignorant, immeasurably stupid. Even our Nikolai Nikolaevich Stakov, a man of great intellect, doesn't want to see the truth. He says, quote, The Germans are clever. They invented gunpowder. But this was just due to the way they live, close quote. Steiner again. He means that the fact they invented gunpowder doesn't in any way ameliorate their terrible stupidity. Quote, in Switzerland there is enough forest. In the mountains there is more forest left than in the other European countries, although it's declining terribly every year. Now imagine this, for five months of the year it's terribly cold here, and then there's an awfully cold northeast wind as well, and for three months the winter is almost the same as ours. Everybody shivers in the cold, the padded flannel clothes are never taken off, and there are no steam baths here, so you can imagine the dirt they're accustomed to. Nobody has proper winter clothes. Flannel alone isn't enough for such a winter. They wear the same ones as in summer, and they haven't even got the sense to winterproof their apartments. What difference does an open fireplace with coal or wood make, even if you heat all day? Heating all day costs two francs a day, and so much forest is destroyed unnecessarily, because we don't even get warm. What do you think? If they just had double glazing, then we could at least live with the fireplaces without even installing ovens. And we would save the woods. In twenty-five years there'll be no forest left at all. They really live like savages. But they can certainly put up with a lot. In my room, when it's permanently heated, it's plus five degrees Celsius. I was sitting there in my coat. Money was supposed to arrive. I had to pawn some valuables and all the while thinking about the plot of my novel. Is that a good life? It said this year in Florence it went down to minus 10 degrees. In Montpelier it was minus 15. Here in Geneva it only went down to minus 8 degrees. But it's all the same when the water in your room freezes. I just moved and now I have nice rooms. One of them is always cold but the other is warm, about plus 10 or plus 11 degrees Celsius and so I can go on living. Close quote. Steiner again. And so he goes on. 
So you see, the Central and Western Europeans don't get off lightly in the portrayals of this most excellent of Russians. And we have to ascribe this to the fact that they don't have the possibility of going out even as far as their skin. There is this closed system which can't harmonize with the environment but demands that everything else adapts to it. From the perspective of the history of the time, it's very interesting to read these letters which have just been published. That's why I chose them and not those from the first third of the 19th century for our study of the century because in Russia these themes only emerged later although they were always present below the surface. In this case, we can characterize the time a hundred years ago by looking at the facts of a later time. And we even find things we'd be very surprised at in the West. Now, if you want to compare descriptions by Western or Central Europeans, you will find the following passage from a letter from the same date, 1 March 1868, interesting. We can see how people can view the world from various points of view. Quote, As for our courts, having read much, I've formed the following opinion about them, the moral being of our judges, close quote, meaning those in Russia. Quote, and above all of our juries is infinitely higher than in Europe. They regard criminals as Christians. Even the Russian traitors who live abroad will admit to this. But one thing seems unresolved. I think that in this humanitarian relationship with criminals there is a certain liberality learned from and dependent on books. You can sometimes see this. By the way, being so far from home, I could be wrong. However, in this respect, our essential nature is infinitely more elevated than that of the European. Close quote, Steiner again. Here you see that his views on the courts are given from a different perspective than you would usually hear in Western Europe. I'd like to emphasize two points from the lectures yesterday and today. Firstly, it's absurd to believe that we can use present-day standards to judge the conditions of even as recently as a century ago. We have to respond with care to the circumstances of the past if we want to develop an opinion that does justice to them. But even with regard to our contemporaries, we have to find a certain generosity in our opinions of them. This is what we have to find nowadays, a way of disregarding the national point of view and discovering that of the citizen of the earth. But this can only develop out of a deeper knowledge of humanity. The world couldn't achieve this deeper knowledge before the advent of anthroposophy. And we could say that if we really study what was happening in Europe a century ago, we can see that there is a longing for this deeper knowledge of humanity. But with what they knew at the time about nature, it wasn't possible to achieve this deeper knowledge in the modern sense. Then natural science overwhelmed everything in the second half of the 19th century. And now we have to search for what the best minds in Europe longed for and which was submerged for a while, so that now we must search for it again with a higher spiritual knowledge. Only this will give humanity the strength which can lead to the rise of civilization out of its decline. It's really grim that so little history, so little geography is cultivated in the sense mentioned above, that things have become so bound to outward appearances. The important thing is that we look for the spiritual in history and in a geographical sense all over the earth. Especially history and geography have to go through a metamorphosis in a spiritual sense. 
This is exactly what Goethe's educational province, in quotes, in his novel Wilhelm Meister, did not yet have, even though the longing for it was there in his characters. And so much of the longings of that time are now erupting in our own times. Humanity has to wake up to what was once dreamt of with such yearning, so that the dreams of that time can now become reality through the power of spiritual knowledge. Humanity needs this reality for the future of civilization. The end of Lecture 5